Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a class from our 2022 Elul Learning Series. Let me do a quick recap of where we were last time. Uh, also for those who are joining on a podcast, because we have some asynchronous learners uh, who are taking in the class at their own pace. So last week I handed out um, a source sheet, which I will send out again virtually to everybody from Congregation Beth Emmeth, and we used it as the basis to learn a few basic things about um, about Gabaut in terms of terminology and also how Gabaut functions uh, in um the different roles function because there are a variety of ways that Gabaut can take place in a synagogue setting. So we talked a little bit about uh, the Gabai role and what a Gabai Rishon and a Gabai Shani are. Last week, I defined those as the primary and the secondary Gabai, as opposed to first Gabai and second Gabai. I think of it as I was thinking about the analogy after the class, I was thinking it's a little bit like first chair violin and second chair violin. Like they both have critical roles, but one has a different kind of a leadership role and they're, it's not necessarily indicative of skill. That's why I want to be careful of the analogy, but it certainly requires a little bit more skill to do uh, the Gabaut um, from the Rishon position because of the liturgy, which is what we're going to get into today. We also talked last time about the different occasions on which one might be a Gabbai because the Torah is being read. So as a quick review, we read Torah, we read a Parsha in a typical week with no holiday interruptions four times, right? We begin Saturday afternoon, then Monday morning, Thursday morning, and then Saturday morning. And we started there not just because of the frequency, but also because each of those days has three Aliot assigned to them, and we worked our way up the ladder. Hanukkah also does, and then we keep on going up. Rosh Chodesh and other special occasions like Cholam Oed gets four. Then we go to five for Yom Tov, including Rosh Hashanah, six for Yom Kippur, seven for Shabbat. And we talked about some more detailed things like the way in which those Aliot can be redivided and subdivided. Uh, and we also... Um, we, we got close to talking about uh, what the liturgy is for the Gabaim when they're standing up at the Torah, and we're going to get into that today. We're going to start with the weekday Gabaut as the liturgy, then we're going to move to um, to Shabbat, and we're going to look at the differences between those two liturgies. And I'm going to leave a couple minutes, too, because I don't have answers to all of Marshall's questions, but I have answers to a couple of questions that Marshall submitted that I think would be worthy of kind of folding into this um, discussion up here. So we're going to talk about liturgy and choreography also in the mix. We're going to start with the weekday tefillot, and then we'll see how much time there is for Shabbat. So a couple of basic things that maybe, I don't know, I think this falls in the category of people are too afraid to ask, and they're a little bit different depending on the setting that you're in. The first basic thing is what direction the Torah is facing. So last week we got all the way up to the point where we talked about opening up the ark, taking the Torah out, or sometimes multiple Sifre Torah. Typically when you have multiple Sifre Torah, you have two. There are only a few other occasions on which we have more, including Simchat Torah. Kondidre, I wouldn't even count in that regard because we're not talking about chanting from the scroll. So most of the time we're talking about one scroll, sometimes two. So once you take out those scrolls from the ark, a couple of things happen. The first is if there's just one scroll, then the first thing that's going to happen is a hakafa around the room. That's when the gabaim for the Torah, the Torah gabai is gabai rishon, the primary one, and the secondary gabai sheni, that's when they typically take their places. Not in every space, but most typically you'll have the gabaim for the Torah come up during the hakafa, the sivuv, the march or the parade around the um, sanctuary or the space. Yeah. Of course, yes. Uh, the story described 
How, what, right, what's the orientation, what's the direction in which, I'm just admitting someone to Zoom, what's the direction in which we were? So, so that kind of made me scratch my head. First of all, you look at it from above. You are the person turning mm -hmm. to the right mm -hmm. always. Uh, so typically speaking, there are several different traditions in regards to where do you go and parade about. Generally speaking, the way to, um, to think about it is most places will have the first march when we take out the Torah go counterclockwise and the second one go clockwise. I will find the sources for that. It's easier for me to think because of the stage right and house right issue, right? Which right are we talking about? It's easier to think clockwise and counterclockwise. I as looked at from above. Or as looked at from above. But I, yes, as looked at from above, correct. But you're exiting out of the, in, if you think about it in the sanctuary upstairs here, yeah. it means turning one's body to the right in order to do that, that counterclockwise okay. motion, right? So right? That, so the statement that was in the Ruach was all turning right, when in fact it's actually just turn to the right and then follow the path around the room. Right. That, that I don't think any one luach, unless it were particularly written for a space. So I don't know if Miles Cohen, Rabbi Miles Cohen, who writes the luach that we keep in our tradition. Let me pause there for a second. There is a book called the luach. Now, a luach, that's just the word for calendar or even for like a, a plate kind of that you keep any important information on. That lu the that's why Shnei Luchot Habrit the the tablets of the commandments that's why the that's the same word Luach and Luchot. So the Luach that we have is produced by the United Synagogue. This is our our purple Luach. Is there one hanging on there? Sometimes there is. Mike might have it at his table. So there's we have a Luach in our tradition. Every community has a printed luach. Every community that takes a, a daily minion seriously has a printed luach. Some are using theirs from their movement, right? So like a young Israel luach, for example, that perhaps all young Israels are using. Some are actually designed like in their community. So what you're referring to, oh, motion, hang on. What you're referring to is, um, is the the instructions that sometimes come to us inside the luach that gets published at the start of the year, which is a fascinating concept. I like Taibo's little background of the, just the virtual access to the luach. Um, and the whole concept is so that any changes to the basic gaba'ut, as in the choreography and the liturgy of the day, changes are what are noted. So this is what makes a luach so tricky and I think somewhat advanced to use. It would be too thick to note everything every single day. It really deserves, if you need a luach to that degree, what you really need is a website. But you're, because you're talking about generating, uh, I see your hand, one second, right? Um, you're talking about generating an enormous amount of information on a given year. So in order to utilize the luach, I acknowledge that, you know, even to use it up at the bima, that requires a great deal of basic understanding of what's taking place. Because when, for example, Miles Cohen notes that we uh, are skipping Tachanun, one has to know what is Tachanun? Is it just skip today? Is it our community's tradition to continue skipping Tachanun? So there's a lot of it, there's a lot of assumed knowledge that goes into utilizing a luach. But part of what I'll try to do a couple of classes down the road is to actually walk us through and I'll project it on the screen both here and, and there so we can walk through some of the um, complications of, of a luach. Special. Um, so Rick had a question or comment. Yes. Hi. Um, just kind of tongue in cheek about whether you go to the right from the arc or you go to the left. Um being left-handed, I'm very aware of the right-handed bias of the world, <clears throat> including yeah. you're supposed to carry the Torah on your right shoulder, and you're supposed to put the Yad on the right uh, uh, of the Yad Sechayim, and it's just an arbitrary thing, and it's a bias. So I would totally understand that as you're coming away from the Ark, you're facing the congregation, the, the, the tendency is to go to the right first because of all the right-handed bias yeah. So um, I just wanted to say that. 
I, you know what, Rick? That's a great observation. I, I would love to ask Rabbi Dr. Vanessa Oaks about that. She's actually, so she's a, she's my guru on inventing Jewish rituals. She literally wrote the book. It won the National Jewish Book Award in 2007. But also, she's an anthropologist. So when she looks at these kinds of uh, traditions, she looks at it almost almost externally, though she acknowledges she's a part of the community, but she she would probably have something really interesting to say about the way that right-handed bias has entered the uh, mainstream of ritual practice and customs. I also, Rick, I'm sort of tempted to the joke, everyone know the joke about the ducking, right, That and the hakafot on Hosh, the Hoshanot? So it was a community, and every time they were doing the the Hoshana repetitions, they would duck down at this one part of the room. And finally, someone asked, and Tywin knows the joke, it's like joke number 47. Someone asked, why are you duck there? And they said, well, because in the old building, there was a really low pipe, like hanging at that spot. And so sometimes I think about the, the, the biases that we have, but also the mysterious origins of, um, of the custom, right? There are lots of origins that, that are quite mysterious. A table, and then we're going to move to the liturgy itself. Um, just fast. I literally just learned, I hope it wasn't in the Gabai class because that old person, I'm re- repeating myself. In the, in the LL series, my childhood conservative show, the only time we bowed right first was in that verse in Lachadodi, because even though the English translation reversed it in the Hebrew, right mm. comes first. And I just learned that that was not a universal custom, that somehow that was a custom, because in my head, that's the only time you go right rather than left. Like Amida, you do left. Alenu, you do left. Uh, with all the bows, right? Because we have a number of places where the choreography for the person who's leading is to do a trifold bow. And so the, it, often the typical bow is actually left, right, center. Um, but you're right that the verse in Chadudi, which is Kabbalistic in nature and invented in the 16th century, and I just gave a Devar Torah on that Friday night. You'll, I encourage you to listen back to it because... I, it, it's a good one, well, whatever. I can self-promotional, but like it's a really good one about the D and how it was crafted. But yes, Yamin Usmol Tifrotzi, that order. It's a lot like um, the way that that our early rabbis took like Vayahi Erev Vayahi Voker, right? And there was evening, there was morning. Obviously, then the way that we are going to regard a day is that it begins at sundown, that it begins in the evening. So there's something about these liturgical. Uh, influences on the way that we do our choreography for certain. I started about seven minutes ago or whatever. I started by saying it matters, though, once you get up to the table, where are you placing the Torah down? What's the orientation? So the orientation of where we read Torah towards the congregation or away from the congregation is entirely based on the minhag of the community that you're in. There is no standing halakha except for uh, that that frames for us that I'm aware of that tells us that we must read in one direction or the other, except to say that it's listed in this community. The custom was to do X, Y, and Z. So we we yield to the custom of the individual minion. Actually, the different minyanim within our community have different customs at different services, such that when we're at Shabbat Mincha, typically speaking, we read facing the congregation, but in daily minion in the mornings, we read facing away from the congregation. There are a number of meanings behind that. This is not a class, though, on the origins of these practices. It's a class on how to do this. So I I'm going to say that when you move into a space, if you're going to be participating in the Gaba'ut, the first question to whomever is the Rosh of that space, which may very well be a rabbi, whether it's in the clergy-led service or not, given the makeup of Temple Bapam, I would ask somebody, which direction is the Torah facing? Once you have the Torah on the table, the Gabai Rishon typically, with some exceptions, is going to stand to the left of the Baal or Baalat Kore. We do not uh, we do not do that in daily minion. We invert that when we're reading towards the ark. I don't know what the origins are of that particular custom, but otherwise, in every other space, when we're reading out towards the congregation, the only way that I've experienced Gabaut is with the Gabai Rishon oriented to the left of the Torah reader. 
The reason I say this is because a huge part, going to one of Marsha's questions I'll answer later, uh, or suggestions even, that a huge part of the Gabai Shani, the secondary Gabai's job, is to make sure that the people who are coming up for the Kibudim, for the honors, are a-okay with the choreography and are shown how to get through. Meaning, while the Gabai Rishon, certainly in our community this is true, that we split, we divide the responsibilities this way, that the Gabai Rishon is responsible both for the liturgy itself uh, of calling people up and for collecting names and for the liturgy of any Misha Beirach, any blessing that comes for someone who came to the Torah, and making sure we're kind of on track, Whereas the person who's in the role of Gabai Shani is going to take the cover on and off of the Torah, make sure that people have the brachot, the blessings in front of them, that they move around and know whether or not the expectation is that they're going to linger up at the Torah for one extra aliyah, which has kind of moved about, it's a moving target during COVID because some people prefer not to linger. So that's kind of been, a, that's been a bit up in the air, but typically speaking, we would linger. So that's why I'm mentioning the orientation because it also has to do with the appropriate proximity. If I'm here at the Torah table reading facing the congregation, then I really do want one person on one side of me who's mostly responsible for sort of looking outward, who's coming up, who's going down, and the Gabai Shani making sure that the actual uh, back and forth between the reader and the people saying the blessings is going down correctly. Does that make sense to everybody? The, the kind of split of the duties to a certain extent? So um, I want to give you a vocabulary word with that, and then we're going to go into liturgy. Yeah? Um, in terms of following the later and offering any corrections or comments. Um, is, is it just whoever notices it? Right, so the question is, when you have a Gabai Rishon and a Gabai Shani, who takes responsibility? Is it both, only one at a time? How do you take responsibility for doing the corrections? We're going to get to that not next week, but the week after, when we move into the corrective nature of what ought to be corrected and what doesn't need to be. There are different tiers. So there is the tier of corrections that needs to happen because explicitly there's the the stuff in the text that must be read correctly and must get corrected because the meaning of the word has been shifted by the way that the person's pronounced it. There's a secondary tier of corrections that happens when the trope that's being done, if it's done incorrectly, changes the syntax of what's going on. So the secondary tier of corrections is that somebody forgets to do the trope that ends the verse, the sof pasuk, the end of the verse trope. And when someone skips that, and in some places they would say also the etnachta, depending on which rabbi you ask, then that's also necessary for a corrective because that also changes meaning by changing that space. So when we get there, remind me of that question in two weeks when we get back. The question is, how do people divide up? And I have a few different really practically helpful answers to that. Because there's some of them involve hand choreography for one person and not for the other. Some of them involve one person corrects for words and one person corrects for trope, which is my personal favorite. I actually really like that division. There are other places where people say that they are deliberately not doing the corrections because they know that the uh, Baalat Kriya, the, the person who's reading Torah, is more familiar with the corrections of the person who's in one position or the other. Like, for example, it was their bar bat mitzvah tutor. I will always yield to the tutor making the corrections, even if I'm the one who is standing up there. Typically, I'll make the fewest corrections. Rick has had this experience in me. I make the fewest corrections when I ha when the other gabi up there is the very person who taught the person who is leaning. So there are all sorts of rules. We'll go through the tiers of rules and how people split it up when we get there. So I want to teach you one vocabulary um, uh term uh, to grasp onto, and then we'll sing through the liturgy. The term is Bain Gavra. Bain Gavra. And that is uh, an Aramaic phrase that literally means Bain Gavra in Hebrew. Right? It means between person. And that is the name for the Torah blankie in Aramaic. The covers that are particularly constructed, like the one that hangs off of the Pilch Torah, which I don't think is behind me right now, it's in the sanctuary, um, but they're, instead of just laying the Torah cover on over it, instead we have a separately crafted cloth to cover in between 
such that we're um, kind of protecting the modesty of the Torah because we're not paying attention to it in that moment. We cover the Torah at that time. So one of the roles of the Gavai Shemi, while this first liturgy is going on, is ensuring that once we know that the person who is reading the Baal or Baalat, Kore, Kore, or Kriya, either way works. Okay, these are all different constructions of master of reading. The person who's chanting the Torah, once they're set up and they say to the Gavai Shemi, I see where I'm starting to read, that is when we have them place the yod down on the Torah scroll and cover while this initial liturgy is being done. Okay, so I, in the ideal circumstance, we, ha we have the person come up. Once we've sung and we've done the hakafa, we identify that the, the reader knows where they're going. Then they tighten up the scroll a bit and we cover it with the Bain Gavra, which may, in some cases, simply be the Torah cover itself. Okay? Everybody get Bain Gavra? It's just a fun thing to know. Although I can't call it anything but a Torah blankie now that one of my students called it that. And it is good. It looks like the Torah is sleeping there. Taiba likes it. Okay. So on a, uh, on a weekday, the liturgy begins on page 66 of the Slim Shalom. If those who are in the room want to grab a Sidor from behind you, you're more than welcome to follow along. You don't have to. I won't. It doesn't matter to me either way. The liturgy of... Uh, sorry, the Nusa for this liturgy is, it, it originates from Ashkenazi High Holy Day trope. So it begins with the Tevir. It's page 66. So it's, so and at that point we're that's a that's an invitational Everybody hear this, this broad strokes, and then a verse would end with So and then we call the first person to the Torah, which we'll come back to in just a second. That's the end of a verse for High Holy Day trope. So if you if you want to learn High Holy Day trope and you know this, or vice versa, if you know some High Holy Day trope, it actually could be very helpful to just write in the High Holy Day trope trope marks and then sing it to the High Holy Day cancellation. I absolutely cannot figure out what the origin of doing this is. I have a professor from JTS named Dr. Boaz Tarsi, who's a brilliant um, ethnomusicologist in his own right in lots of ways, both about Israeli music and American. He insists that there is no custom going back a hundred years from now, anywhere in Ashkenaz, that would have us using Ta'ame Hamikra, the trope, the trope marks, to chant anything liturgically. Meaning he can find no authentic grounds on which to base doing any of the liturgy at all ever within our Sidor to trope when it's something that's grafted from a piece from the Tanakh, from our biblical canon. Right, because there's lots of liturgy that's grafted from our canon, some of it just more obviously than others. The most obvious version of this is Shema. Right, that's the most obvious version is because it's right there and Sidorim even print the trope marks, the cancellation sometimes, right? He said there's no proof. He does not, he can't quite trace the origin of it, but we know it's within basically the last century that someone introduced the idea of singing to trope 
within the course of the liturgy. You can imagine the circus this creates if you think too hard like I do about these things, because for example, let's say that you're the kind of congregation that usually chants Vea Hafta out loud. Now it's Rosh Hashanah morning. What do you do? Because we're not chanting anything to typical weekday or Shabbat trope, but it, we're also not going to chant it to High Holy Day trope because it's not one of the canonized, it's not one of the fixed set readings for the High Holy Day, so that doesn't make sense either. And the reason why neither fit is because there is no tradition going back any further than uh, this past century for people doing it. It doesn't make it wrong. It just means that I don't have any uh, scholastic proof or notes to give you on the origins of this. Someone's got to write a thesis on it and how that made it in. And therefore, I also don't know when this Nusach was granted in, uh, grafted in, because this is clearly not Nusach. It's clearly from the High Holy Day trope system. So I don't know how that got grafted in there, but like it's deserving of more um, exploration. Rick, did you have a, something you wanted to contribute? Um. Well, yeah, I just wanted to say that singing the Vehafta, um, the kids learning it that way, it's just a great way to, to introduce them to the trope. So whether there was any proof that we did it 200 years ago or 300 or four, I like that somebody came up with the idea of doing it now and putting the trope in the, in the prayer book. So it's, it's all good. So um, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, I, th- I think I go back and forth on this a lot because it is a great pedagogical tool. You know, we know that the way that people learn language, for the most part, like with the exception for those who have different cognitive processes, for the most part, the way that people learn uh, language in any respect is first oral and secondarily through sight, visual. Uh, most of the time, the languages that we have most fluency in, we learned by speaking and hearing and responding and later on connected that with a, with a visual. So it's kind of the perfect pedagogic tool because first the kids will hear Vehafta in the context of services. And then eventually when in first or second grade, they're given a, see uh, door to look at they they can take a look at the page and connect with the Hebrew words and then as they go on they can make this connection with the trope marks as well right with the cancellation marks as well so it's actually like by as as a wannabe uh, formal educator someone who's taken a lot of education courses but is not a formal educator um, I like it that way and I also grapple with the authenticity of it because it takes us so far out of the news off. I don't really care what, what people do in regards to it. That's not sure. I have, I have opinions, but it, I don't judge people for doing it. I think it's fantastically helpful pedagogically. I just have no idea when it is that we started doing high holiday trope or why. Same way that I have no idea, no matter how hard I look, why it is that we mark yard sites instead of people's birthdays. Right? Some decisions are just decisions by the tradition. Some decisions just sort of make it in there and we're not 100% sure where, how they got in there. So the critical thing on a weekday morning with learning how to do this, um, this calling to attention is learning how to insert the name of the first person who is going to be called up to the Torah. So ideally, first of all, if you're a Gabbai Rishon, then it would be really nice if you knew who was coming up because that's going to help you formulate the name. So let's imagine for just a second that we have a, nobody with any Kohen or Levy status. Last week we basically took in and threw away the idea that we're going to pay any attention to uh, Kohen or Levy status. So for the most part, we're going to ignore that. So if you're looking in a Sidor at the way that this liturgy is listed, you're going to ignore how they instruct to call the first person to the Torah because they're going to be saying, well, first it's a Kohen, and if you don't have a Kohen, then it's a Levi. Ignore that for now and look at the bottom two, which instruct you to say, Ya'amod, so-and-so ben so-and-so, Rishon. Now, who is the Rishon referring to? And or what is Rishon referring to? It's, it's the position, the first position. The first position, yeah. And Marshall? Well, 
Or is it, well, it would have to be aliyarishonah. It would have to, for grammatical agreement, I'll get you in a second, Taibo. For grammatical agreement, it would have to be aliyarishonah, and you also need something else. So there are actually various kosher ways to call up. If you're going to call up rishon, you can have rishon, sheni, shlishi. But that's a little bit lazy because what it's doing is, or let me say in a less judgmental way, that's less exact because what you're talking about doing is using the masculine as a default grammatically for collectively, even though the word aliyah itself, the name of the kibbutz of the honor is feminine, is feminine. So it's sort of defaulting to Rishon because for thousands of years in our history, only male people would have been called. So that is the, the basic call. My preference in general is to say aliyah Rishonah or aliyah shnia, but what I, uh, but you can't do that without adding a, a um, conjunction. You need la. You need la, leha, right? So you need to call them up to the aliyah. Because here in this construction, ya'amod or ta'amod, because in daily minion we don't do usually pairs or families. So ya'amod or ta'amod, so-and-so, ben so-and-so, and then it's either rishon or la'aliyah rishonah, or theoretically, if it were I being called to Torah, someone could call me Rishonah, right? Because I could be the first, but that's referring to me in the in the feminine. I am a fan of calling somebody for Ali. I just want to finish this explanation. I promise I'm coming to you, Taibo. The reason why I have that strong preference is that in 2022, at the very least, regardless of your politics or your beliefs around gender, I think we've gotten accustomed not to gendering somebody based on uh, what we perceive their gender presentation to be. That's not a great thing to do in Los Angeles in 2022, nor is it a great, even if you don't have deep cares yourself, it's not a great position to put yourself or to put that person in if as they get closer, you might realize that you called them Ya'amod and then they they came up and said so-and-so but, and then you realize that that person prefers but. So generally speaking, I like to know the full Hebrew name of the person who's coming up because that also tells me the gender that they would prefer that I use in doing the calling. Does that make sense? Because by knowing by knowing who it is, and by the way, sometimes it's as simple as I just can't see who it is coming from the back of the room. So I'll say, uh, who's the first Aliha? And I won't go, Yamod, Tamod. I won't do that right away because I don't know who it is. Or sometimes, here's another one. Sometimes I see someone stand up, but I don't realize they're coming up with someone else, right? And so it really should be Yamdu, which is plural for multiple masculine names, or super fun grammatically. Ta'amodna, which is the ancient biblical way of saying, uh, uh, of commanding to women to stand. The odna thing is, is a, is a classic grammatical thing that I can tell Marshall appreciates as much as I do. So, so really what a, uh, easy way to deal with this really to have, have everything said, and so forth. Yeah. Therefore, because it's, who cares whether it's a male or a female coming to see Aliyah, which is significant. Right. And and I'll tell you where this also gets tricky. You're right. Who cares? Like what the the gender of who's coming up is not important to the scenario that we're creating. What matters is that we're what people care about is what Aliyah is happening. Right. We want to be very clear about what Aliyah is happening. And this gets very messy, in my opinion, around Maftir, because Maftira is, is so inauthentically constructed. I, I'm not a I'm not a fan of that. But Tybal's been waiting patiently. Yes, Tybal. Um, I actually thought you were going to go in a different direction, possibly about how to call. And maybe it never happens at Betham. I think Yemenites still do it, where the person who takes the honor is always the person who reads. So I thought maybe there was going to be a construction. That was going to indicate that the do you know what I mean? That the same person is also the reader. Oh, that sounds really cool. I've never seen that, but that would be. Oh, an I, awesome have, I have. I'm not saying I've seen it. It's just you worded something 
rhetorically and I thought, oh, that's what she's going to do. And then you didn't. And then I thought, oh, I wonder what Yemenites do, because I think Yemenites still do that. It's always the reader has the aliyah. Yeah, I don't know that 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 causes any differences. What I can add, what I thought you were going to say when you thought I was going to say something else was the conservative movement recently passed a tshuva that permits our gabayim to call people up to the Torah with the language na la'amod, please to rise, which translates poorly to English, but is actually a perfectly acceptable construction in modern Hebrew, certainly, and can be retrofitted to our um, calling someone up as well. So um, please to rise. And there's actually, there's an extension on this as well, which is that some people who either identify as non-binary or feel uncomfortable with bot or ben as a construction, use the construction with their name, me bait. So they're, they would be plony, me bait, and then they would say their parents, names from the house of okay so it's from the house of which allows them to construct a um a not it allows them to avoid having to name gender at all it's not it's not even actually to say uh it's, it's a workaround uh, uh that's a great question what if the parents are divorced yeah i don't know if some people might say me bait just the one person that they live with but i think that what what's meant by that bait isn't literally who who they live in a house with but uh it's a good question. Like, how, how exactly do people decide to use that and utilize it? I've never wielded it myself. I'm comfortable with the native construction to our tradition. But I was also born a cis hetero woman. Like, I, I, I was uh, labeled as a girl. I feel like a girl. I identify as a girl, and I have no problem with the liturgy. For somebody for whom their name and their gender identity is a source of either great pride and or great pain, particularly in religious settings, it's my goal to create a, like a an environment that's neutered in the best possible sense of any kind of politics around their gender identity, because that's the last thing that I need to, them to be worried about when what I want to do is honor them. So when people choose to use Nala Amod, I see that as a move for people to just say, I didn't, it doesn't even matter what gender the person is who's coming up. It actually, it's actually for the ease of Gaba'u too. You don't even have to know who's coming up. Nala Amod, who's coming forward, right? So I actually really like it. It just happens to be a relatively newer construction of tradition. Um, but I happen to like it a lot. Just turning back to the liturgy for a second, I'm going to go through it one more time, give an example with Ta'amod, and we're going to do the Baruch Shanatan Torah Le'amo Yisrael B'Kdushato part. So, those are really odd words for um, emphasis. Okay. Like everybody get ready for the greatness of God. Um, and uh, it is the accents are kind of funky. Hakol Havu Godel, it's Neil L. It's it's a it's a weird uh, emphasis construction. Lelohenu Uchnu Havod La Tora Nala Amod or Ta Amod Plonit Baploni Leploni Itlalia Rishona Baruch Shnatan Toraliamo Yisrael Bikdushato, and then we pause. Because the ve'atem ha'devekim baronai elohechem should ideally be first the congregation and then the gabai rishon repeating after them. Says the whole congregation and then the gabai repeats after them. Ve'atem ha'devekim baronai elohechem ha'im akulechem ha'yom. I often like to make that a really clear. Um, kind of end like a sofasuk of high holy day. And then we call up the next person, the next person. Let's just talk through a little bit of the additional uh, liturgy that comes in the middle. We're not going to go through any Mishaberach, so that's next week. Next week I'd like to get to uh, what do we do with Mishaberach, but just a little bit about the liturgy that happens up here. We then have 
blessings for the Aliyah to the Torah that are set out for the people to recite who are coming up for the Aliyah. They recite the Baruch line. We repeat the Baruch Adonai Hamburach Le'olam Va'ed, and then they go back and repeat it again. One does not invalidate their blessings for the Torah by accidentally not repeating that second line. There is no invalidation of uh, the only thing that might concern me in terms of invalidating a bracha or having concern about bracha levatala, saying it in vain, is if somebody uh, mispronounced the chatima, the actual signature ending, the baruch hatarashem notain haTorah, and that's the least mispronounced part. As somebody who watches thousands of people take aliyot a year or whatever, it's not thousands, but it's in the hundreds, and and I, I rarely hear someone say baruch. And then mess up that blessing. And that's really the part that counts because that's the chatima there at the end. We wanted people to get that right. But if people make a few errors in there, that's okay. Unless like you notice that some weird meeting change has, I don't know, maybe someone can come up with a funny scenario where that might matter. So when the first person finishes taking their aliyah by saying that um, baruchu, the first thing is I'm going to do a little bit of choreography work. If I'm taking the honor at the Torah, I can choose, if I wish, to touch and kiss the Torah. I come from a family who is descended from the Gra, from the Vilna Gaon, from the Lithuanian tradition, where he does not like kissing stuff. You may have noticed that I have some interesting practices. I don't know if anyone here has ever noticed that I have some weird practices around tzitziot that I don't do what everybody else does. No one stopped me in nine years, but I have some pretty deliberate practices. So the Vilna Gaon said that if you were to take all four corners of your talit and to gather all four of them together, you would be recreating the garment such that it was no longer a four-corner garment because now you don't have the arba kanfot, the four corners on either side of you if you gathered them all in front of you. You see how pedantic Lithuanians can get, right? He's very picky here. So he says, we only gathered the front two. He also never kissed. So I don't do smooches to my tzitziot. I don't kiss as the Torah goes around. And when I gather my tzitziot for Shema, I only gather the front two. I also have no custom of doing that at Baruch Shemar, though I have seen a number of people have that custom at Baruch Shemar. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is that there are some people who are not kissers of the Torah. Not every tradition is for someone to kiss the Torah. So we need not go nuts if somebody doesn't. Meaning, I think it's important, a priori, that we guide people to do the practices that our minion does. For example, kissing the Torah. Marshall, you asked about the notain ha-Torah and the lifting, the atzei chayim, the wooden poles. That's not every single person's tradition to do that. So if someone doesn't do it, I'm not going to stop them. It is, however, delightful, wonderful, laudable for us to teach as many people as possible this wonderful practice that lots of people in our community do, which is to say that when we thank God for blessing us with the gift of Torah, that we sort of lift it up. We take hold of it ourselves. That's a great practice. Well, because also, I, I thought about that one because of the ending. We're saying, it's time to hila Right, it's time to hila exactly. So that, therefore, if you're going to be up at the top, let's have a chizuk of the... Uh, Right, grasp onto the Torah like the liturgy is going to have us do when we put it away. If you have the zuchut, the merit to get up to the Torah scroll, I think that that's the impulse with a lot of these choreographic practices, the touch and the kiss, the grasping hold of it, the lingering up there. It's to demonstrate that we're going to take advantage of the proximity that we've been granted to the Torah. It's all of that. I forget if it was this group or my other class that I was saying to last week that it's also kind of my theory about the pinky finger. Did you hear? Was, that must have been my other class. I was explaining, I have a theory about the pinky finger. Have you ever heard, Rabbi Klickfeld has several theories. None of us know exactly what the story is, why some people hold up a pinky during uh, Hagba. My theory Without is wrapping some people wrap their tzitzes around as they hold it up. Okay, my theory is we're all very nervous. I'm, I'm not kidding about this. My theory is we all have a bit of anxiety about that Torah falling because we don't want that to happen. It's a precarious moment. And we're all going, like, 
what I really want to do is rush and go up there and grab it, but I'm holding up a finger to it as if I'm saying, if I were right up there, like we're all spotting you. To me, when I look out at a crowd of people doing this up to the Torah, I see people like reaching towards it and offering kind of a spotted moment, like holding up their fingers to it. I'm sure that has nothing to do with the original practice, but that's what I, maybe it just reveals my own anxieties. <laughs> yeah, Diane? So the Sephardic synagogues in Israel all do. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful and it's a common practice. My whole point in saying all of this is all of these additional choreographic things, we need not stop people. What's really important to know as a Gabbai is, can I let this go? Okay, that's basically every decision a, a Gabbai makes at the Torah is, can I let this go? Can I let it go if a non-Jewish person comes up for an aliyah to the Torah? Almost certainly not. Right? I, if, I, if I know that somebody is not Jewish, I'm not talking about investigating or inquiring. But if I know somebody's not Jewish, I'm going to say, I'm so glad that you were invited up here. Let's figure out something to do to honor you because this particular ritual piece is reserved for those who are Jewish per our tradition. So that I'm going to stop them at. But if they don't kiss, if they don't lift, if they kind of spoil a word or two in the, um, in the blessing itself, but they make it through the end of the blessing, like, you know, it's, it's fine. We don't need to stop people for those things. Um, so that addresses one of the things that you were mentioning, which is uh, getting at this idea. I want to get to some of Marshall's questions because um, we're going to move into more of the liturgy and the Mishavera um, for next week. But I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about a couple of the questions that you had. So one thing that I mentioned was the grasping of the Atefayim and the practice and teaching people to go up. I think it's lovely. We also need not stop people if they don't grasp onto it. Um, you also asked about uh, a couple of questions about the Magbia and the Golel or Golelit. Well, before that, yeah. I want to go, this is my first question, I think. Rupat Adonaino Tainan Torah. Yes. The congregation says Amen. Uh-huh. And I, I have for, for six months now, I've never been saying as a reader, yeah. I'm no longer saying Amen separately from the... Uh, right. Correct. So the question is... Uh, this is a question of when we say, when does the Gabbai and when does the reader of the Torah say Amen and yeah, how? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so this is, this is a really important one. Amen is always meant to be conjoined with a blessing itself and pausing too long or saying Amen to something that wasn't an appropriate blessing can be con- considered an, an orphan Amen. That's what we call it. Okay, so it's an, an orphan. Uh, an orphan Amen is like when somebody does um, uh, that separation entirely from, from uh, the blessing itself is problematic. There's a double problem with a person who's reading the Torah that the challenge that I have, I'll say, when I'm reading Torah, here's my challenge. My challenge is twofold. First, that I want my amen to be conjoined with the blessing. I want it to be in response directly to that blessing that they're making. I also, this is actually more important to me than the former. I don't want the reader of the Torah, myself included, to give the impression that Amen is written in the Torah scroll. I'm the only person with a clear view of the Torah scroll when I'm reading from the Torah. So what my chazan taught me growing up, and then later was reinforced by cantorial school, was that there's more of a concern, actually, that the reader be looking down into the scroll while saying Amen, because it, it, show, it would demonstrate accidentally that Amen was in the scroll. And secondarily, of importance as well, is that we say amen in such a way that it's actually conjoined to the blessing. So it's fine. What my preference, like I think the perfect amen by a gabbai, uh, by a bal kore, by somebody who's reading Torah, is na teha Torah. And as people are saying, amen, amen, overlap with them a little bit. It does not matter to me if someone does it in tevir trope or does Amen. The reason people do it with Tavir, or why I teach students to do it that way, is to get them out of the melody of the blessings and into the trope of the Torah. So I teach them that because it's a bit of a mnemonic to get them into that musical mode, right? 
is a lot easier than now you're going from minor to major and it's like a it's a bit of a of a leap so in order to actually say amen with the community but also lead yourself into the Torah and not look at it what I typically do I try to do is as I'm reading person getting the honor says no tain Torah I go amen I'll look up while I'm saying amen in order to demonstrate it's not there because I'm telling you I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and if I sing something and I'm looking down at a page while I'm singing it they're a hundred percent convinced it's on that page right and I'm not talking about because they're literate or not I'm just saying like I see how the world is and and advise and the more that I parent them and see that they think that what I'm looking at in a book is actually what I'm reading the more I understand this point that like you don't want to give people the impression that it's there and amen is a word in the Torah it's there sometimes so um so, so are, you, are you reciting it then with everybody else I'm reciting it with everyone else, but I choose to recite it with everyone else and extend it a little bit and do it in the Tavir trope. So as other people are saying, Amen, I'm going, Amen, and that's a way of getting around it. No one need do it exactly like me, but now you understand the principles behind it, which is the concern that I'm looking in the scroll and also the concern that somehow it's going to seem like like, even if you forget about the scroll thing, if someone says, no, tain, hatorah, and then the reader all of a sudden goes, amen, my homer, it, it really does look as though that's, that's a part of the reading and not a part of the, of the blessing sandwich. So I try to make it relational and respond to the person who's saying <laughs> the blessing, amen, and then go to my reading. That's like very principled of me, but it's all I have to think about all day long. So, um, you know, that, that, that's, uh, I think that's like the, um, platonic ideal of, of the amen and Dayenu if, if um, at least people kind of conjoin their amen with the blessing itself or I think it's adjoin I think that's the word I'm looking for adjoin it like it should be it should be a part of it um, there's one other thing that I wanted to mention which has to do with the um, the lifting and wrapping but it's kind of skipping ahead but I wanted to answer your question just because we kind of got into the the yud thing so I'm going to answer Questions that you don't know that Marshall asked me, but I'm going to get into it a little bit. So once we have three people come up to the Torah with this liturgy, and next week we'll come back to the liturgy and do the Misha Beirach stuff, on a weekday morning, there's Chatsi Kaddish. In the packet, which we'll happily send to people again, um, so we have it in, in uh, digital form, there's a wonderful chart about when Chatsi Kaddish is and is not said. In the morning, it's said. At uh, Mincha, when we read Torah, like on Shabbat afternoon or a fast day, we don't have a Chatsi Kaddish there. Okay? So there are times when we say it, times when we don't say it. And this is a great example, actually, to go back to the Luach conversation of a way in which Hamevin Yavin, if you know it, you know it. Because the Luach isn't going to tell you, skip the Chatsi Kaddish here. Because the editors of the Luach presume that you understand the basic general principles, the Klal, the, the klal the general rule that we don't, uh, that, that we say Tafanun every day and therefore they'll just refer to, we're not doing Tafanun, we're not doing Chatsi Kaddish in this case, in this example, right? So um, this is a great example of where the Luach is complicated for somebody who doesn't know already the basic rules. Like all the Luach will tell you is X Chatsi Kaddish occasionally, but it won't remind you every single t- Monday and Thursday to say Chatsi Kaddish at the right place, because then the book would be this thick, right? So our our role as Gabaim is to make sure that either the Gabai Shemi or the person reading the Torah says Chatsi Kaddish, two other options, both of them 100% kosher, could also be simply like a floor Gabai or a rabbi in the space, it could also be the person who is, um, who's Baal, um, Kriata, not Kriata, the, who's, who's, uh, I'll just use English, who's responsible for leading the Torah service. So that person too could be called back up to do the Chatsi Kaddish while other stuff is being done. 
All of this is important because we live in a time where sometimes there are 11 people present for a morning minion and people are busy doing their roles. Right? What's happening is the Gabbai Shani is busy covering up the Torah. The Gabbai Rishon is looking for calling up the, the uh, Magbiah and Golel or Golelit, right? And while all that's going on, it'd be really convenient if someone else could take care of Hatsi Kaddish. It moves the service along. So when you have fewer players in the system, I think that's when you wind up tossing off those responsibilities to other people who are standing there. When somebody comes up to do Hagba at the Torah, there are those in our congregation who would really like there to be a certification for that. I don't object strenuously to that. I think it would be really nice if we had that. But given the fact that most of the time, or at least half of the time, you do not have somebody um, who who uh, knows what they're doing, let's uh, stand up for a minute. You, you don't have to necessarily stand up at home, but if you feel like stretching, uh, Taiwan and, and Barbara and Rick, and you can, then you're welcome to. I'm going to demonstrate a little bit, kind of like end on this. So the number one job of the person who is doing Hagba it's actually perfect to demonstrate with. The number one, oh, let's keep this cover on for the moment. Um, but thank you. That is exactly what I would want to get my shady to do, is to take it off. So we're going to keep it on for a second. The number one role of somebody who is doing Hagba or Galila, let's make sure we can show it, the number one role of that person is to make sure we don't drop the Torah. I care about nothing more than that. No one does. We don't want to drop the Torah scroll. So repeat that. Yes, as often as, as, often as possible. possible. We truly do not want to drop the Torah scroll, right? And for me, this is one of the few things that trumps uh, being kind to somebody who could use an honor and didn't get an honor that day. I'm very sorry if that person is not capable of doing it in a really confident manner. It's really important to the community that we pick the appropriate person. We'll find some honor for someone else, right? I just care much more about that than anything else. Also, there is a concern that some people think that there needs to be a, um, what I would call a... Uh, beautification of the mitzvah of Hagba, I'm assuming the best in people, and that they need to open up to as many columns as possible, which is a terrible idea for a lot of reasons, just like physics alone, that's not a good idea. You actually want this to be a little bit taught. We want, when somebody does Hagba, we want it to be a little bit of tension. We don't want it to be entirely loose because that's a great way for people to lose their grasp. We also don't want them to split the Torah, whether on the seam or not, but we don't want them to lose um, their grasp because what happens is there's no longer any tension between the two poles. If you have too much uh, cloth, too much of the um, paper, like the parchment, thank you, <laughs> that other word. If you have too much there, then you don't have tension anymore. So it's actually not helpful to the task. And in fact, is uh, it's a little bit of a gross like overshow. It's not helpful. So what I tell people to do is to minimally, uh, to minimally show three columns if they are capable of doing so. If not, it's okay. It's still a kosher lift so long as they do it and don't drop it. But I tell them ideally a minimum of three columns and please don't stretch beyond your shoulder breath. There is no reason to open up. Let me name the physics of it again. When you go to up, open up a Torah scroll, you should open it up to shoulder width, which should allow you to get to a place where there's a, a light tension on the cloth itself. Once you get that light tension on the cloth and you've got the two um, in their grasp, and we've made sure that there's a chair behind the person. What we want to teach people to do is another physics lesson. I feel like Aja should be doing this, not I, but we'll um, see. Jump one short and jump. Well, one of the things about the physics, when you ten, put tension on it, it's now one, instead of balancing yeah. two things, you're balancing one thing. Exactly. At a time. And that's that's how you right that's what tension is right like yeah. thank you for suspension bridges right like the, the whole point is that you want to create a good tension what i want to show you right now is not actually a full hogba i want to show you how you show someone to take it off the table because this isn't a hogba class it's a gabau class so how do you instruct somebody to do it you say to them have you ever done this before if they say yes then just say to them just three columns is fine right if they look a little overconfident you can let them know three is fine and then you say to them oh you haven't done this before here's what you're going to do you're going to take it about halfway off the table okay and i'm going to slide this with uh, with it you can take it about halfway off the table and then when you get it halfway off the table and you can pivot it and the all of the weight of the scroll itself, you can't say all this in like a hushed whisper, but you can say to them, 
pull it halfway off the table, and once you feel the weight of the Torah lifting on there, this is not on me, it's on the table, then bend your knees, please God, don't break your back, you know, bend your knees and move your body down and lift up underneath it. So even a heavy Torah scroll, and I'm 4'11", and this is darn tall and really heavy, even that can be done pretty safely if you lift, if you put all the weight of it against the, this is a very heavy Torah, but I can do it fine because I'm using the table to my advantage. And it's also, if you do it halfway up the scroll, it's not going to, um, it's, it's unlikely to hurt the Torah scroll itself. So if you're up at the table and you're instructing somebody or, or you're helping, you're, you've been asked to be a, uh, a golel or golelet and you are going to wrap it, you say to somebody, take it halfway off the table, feel where you can bend it, and then lift up. Don't do it just a little bit off because then you're, you're squished up. You want to create, I'm like not the strongest person in the world, but I can lift whatever as long as I have the right leverage. So that was what I wanted to say about the, the um, Hagla rule, when you are Gabai, last thing I'm going to say, and I'm going to take Rick's long-held question or comment, um, uh, when you are responsible at the table for the team that's coming up for Hagba and Galila, we want to make sure that the person who has Galila knows that their role is more critical than they think it is. Their role doesn't start when the person is sitting down. Their role starts by being a spotter, for the tourist role itself behind the person, even if they themselves are not that physically fit, it doesn't matter. You can still spot somebody behind them, guide them to the chair. And the very first thing you want them to say, the minute that that person gets in the chair, I don't care how short you are, grab as, to, as close to the top as you can, grab those top eight seam yeah. and pull them together. Tell them, tell them if they likely can't get to all the way to the top on a tall one like this, mm-hmm. but they can get to the plates at the bottom. Exactly. They just, Whatever they can reach, they can you want them to bring it together. Under that mm-hmm. and support it. There's two reasons. It's not just re-wrapping yeah. or re-rolling the Torah. It's also to get the weight off of the person's shoulder. Exactly. That person is so holding So they can it. lower their arms. Yep. They need, and, and it's good to have the, the width uh, because that keeps, there's a tendon in there, and that bone can clip that tendon. If they have weight on their arms and yeah. they have their arms, their hands too close together, that puts danger on their shoulder. Right, so it's you spread best to them do. Apart, exactly. And you bring, then you can bring your arms down, and the less weight that you have on there, the better off you are. I'm going to put you and Larry in charge of a Gabi training next because okay. I, too, would like every single person to be as attentive. But Galila is, is your right, more important, and most people don't realize that they have to be willing. They're the ones who have Correct. They're, it's a really critical role, and it's not lip service. Yeah, it's, it's very good to be a good spotter. Okay, Rick has been so patient, and then Barbara, you've been waiting. It's really okay. Um, you covered mostly what I, I do. When I'm up there, I would just suggest to the group, just when you're giving instructions, use very few words and just be really clear. So I tell what I said to the the relative from the Grismans last Shabbat. I said to the guy, you push down, you'll use leverage, it'll come up. It's not a deadlift. And he understood what I was saying, and he did it just fine. So you just yeah. give them, you know, go yeah. here, you know, tighten this, put this on top. Okay. You, you just, if you're really nice and you're clear, it it goes a long way. It really does. And the more that you can help somebody out by explaining ahead of time, the better. Okay, Barbara was waiting too. Thank you for spotting me with that chair. <laughs> yeah. I, I just wanted to mention the trauma to the entire synagogue when – Torah was dropped on, I think it was Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, or maybe it was second day Rosh Hashanah. That one time when it fell out of the ark because it wasn't put back right? No. It fell out of the guy. It was almost back to the ark. It was in the end stages. Yeah. And then it went down. It was going to be passed to somebody else, and it went down to the floor. Um, The shock in, in, in in the Lebry Minion, but then... As as it as the shock spread to the entire synagogue, it was amazing the number of people that signed up to fast for the for for the law for the dropping of the Torah. It was a I, I mean I still feel it because I was the guy. 
and I try to jump onto it and get it, but man, it fell fast. Yeah, it goes down really fast. These things are extremely heavy. Some of ours are probably about 80 pounds. I mean, really with the wood and everything, it just t- it takes a lot of care. Guys, it, it all falls at the same rate because air it's not like a feather where the air is blowing it around right so a lightweight ball and a heavy ball it's the same rate rate, but but it falls faster than i think we're prepared for it to fall (laughs) because no matter what it is it definitely goes yeah i was just a couple feet from it and i couldn't get under it yeah there's no way it's just not possible and so we want to create the best possible environment for it and that's why it's so nice to have a gabi team that specialized roles to whatever degree we can like i said when my my concern about i I promise i'll kind of end on this comment and and uh stop the recording my concern always at the table um at the gabi table is that um people get somehow we get distracted by the circus of it all. Like the Hogmungliller moving and getting into position over here and this person's pulling the cover off. And so they're looking over there because they're looking for where to put the cover down and the other person's over. And all of a sudden, nobody's really watching except for the person who's doing the hogba and the person who was like shivering because they're hoping they can catch it if, if it were to fall. So um, I think that when the Torah is being lifted and when the Torah is being marched around, nothing matters more than making sure that the Torah is safe and that it's going around. Okay, I said that was my last comment, but then I have one other comment, which is when the Torah fell last time, so not that time, Barbara, but the last time that the Torah fell, which was at a bat mitzvah about four years ago, uh, upstairs when the, uh, a bunch of kids rushed up on Bima and it fell forward in the old, right before we oh, redid the old sanctuary. It was sitting, it was sitting in, in its stand and it was knocked over. And it it was no malice. It just, it fell over. Um, One of the things that people noted that I thought was such a beautiful point was everybody rushed and felt so terrible about the Torah, but how many times have people rushed the aid of people who are struggling to get up to the Bima or to the Ark or noticed that there's a little kid and, you know, avoided trampling them during the candy rush. Like, Call the Homer. All the more so we should treat the people who are in this space with the kind of dignity that we're worried about with the Torah. So all that we said is true about the Torah. And if all of that is true about the Torah scroll, then multiply it times a million for the people who are in the room. Like, let's I've, be sure that we're paying attention. I've been there for several people that have had medical emergencies. Yeah, so, it, see, I mean, medical I, emergencies and also trips and falls. And I have to agree that taking care of people that are – Fall, that, have, that have passed out and fallen over a chair, splitting their body in half, which was Mr. Al Zurch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, one other person that had a a um, seizure in front of everybody. Then there's been other people as well that we've had to worry. That, that is more important, I have to say, yeah. than a Torah. It is more important, and most of the time all we're dealing with, God willing, is just the Torah scroll. But there are so many ways that we can take that attention that we're able to give to all that Torah scroll and use these rules to also just pay attention to the person who's up there next to us and in front of us and make sure that they're okay. You get the last word. It occurs to me that we have all these cards for the Aliyot. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should have cards for Hagba and Gulima, which show in pictures how to do it. Uh, we, I did at the old shul that I was at. We had, uh, we had exactly that. <laughs> um, and I agree. I think that having a, a pictogram would be great. Yeah. yeah. I totally agree. The other way to go is to only use certified uh, Torah lifters. Some communities very seriously do that. They won't let anyone lift the Torah unless they've been through uh, a training, including honorees at the name Mitzvah. And you know what? If a Torah scroll is dropped enough times in my community, I guess I would probably institute that too. So, but I totally agree. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.